Hello there, I'm Thomas Ridley, and welcome to Keeping It Current, which is a brand new political podcast aimed at discussing the tough talking points in local and national politics. Every episode will have expert analysis from former MYP Jacob Breed, who's toughed it out with political giants John Burko and Rory Stewart. Thank you, Thomas. Every week we'll be joined by a special guest, and this week we have been joined by former Green Party candidate for Surrey Heath, Mrs Lawson. Every week we'll be discussing a different topic, and this week we are talking about the political parties. First, we're talking about the Conservatives, who are the party that currently make up the UK government and are currently negotiating a deal for us to exit the EU with. So I'll ask our analyst, Jacob Reid, to tell us what his opinions are on the Conservative Party. <laughs> well, well, Thomas, that's an interesting question. I mean, um, historically, the Conservative Party does have a very strong reputation on the economy, and they are, of course, a party of low taxation. We saw that in Philip Hammond's recent budget. And, of course, low taxes is good. No one wants to pay more tax than they have to. But perhaps because of this, they have a particularly weak reputation in regard to things like schools, the NHS, police, which have really in recent times been squeezed by George Osborne's policy of austerity. As for the moment, we've got Theresa May trying to negotiate the uh, deal to leave the EU. But her Conservative Party, if you can call it that, is so bitterly divided. You have the people, the figures on the right of the party, like Jacob Rees-Mogg, David Davis, Boris Johnson, who have the polar opposite to their counterparts on the left, like Anna Soubry. And somewhere in the middle is Theresa May. Frankly, they're so, so divided. And the only way I think that they've made this minority government work for a whole year is the fact that Labour are just as divided. So the fact that they're almost equal, in fact, ahead of Labour in the polls at the minute, is quite frankly remarkable, Thomas, a sign of these remarkable political times. Yes, thank you, Jacob, for that brilliant piece of analysis on the Conservative Party. I have to say that the Conservative Party have not exactly been strong and stable since the 2017 general election. They have been more on the side of weak and wobbly. Considering strong and stable was the slogan of the Conservatives' 2017 general election manifesto, it hasn't been good by any means for the Conservative Party over the past year or so. But the alternative option isn't much better, and we'll discuss that later in the show. Theresa May has come under much scrutiny over the last year, with losing her majority when the Conservatives were miles ahead of Labour in the polls and making a mockery of Brexit with a heavily criticised Chequers plan. But the question is, could anyone else do it better, Jacob? <laughs> could anyone do it better? Well, I think, I think it's fair to say Theresa May is doing a bad job of a bad job. Um, but could anyone do it better? Well, I think... First of all, you've got to see the two key mistakes. And the first is that Theresa May has such a bitterly divided party. She's not going to get a consensus on anything. She'll either please the Brexiteers or she will please the Remainers in her party. And it seems that at this point, they are mutually exclusive. Uh, so apart from being unable to build a consensus, which she could have done with, for example, a government or a cabinet or a Brexit committee of national unity made up of cross-party cross people to work together at a compromise, she didn't do that. And so now you have these bitter divides within her own party, let alone the other parties in the wider country. 
But I think, Thomas, another key mistake is that she triggered Article 50 uh, very early on in 2017, and it took all the way to the summer of 2018 to propose the Chequers deal. That's... That's ridiculous, wasting so much negotiating time. She should only have started the, sh the, the stopwatch on the negotiations once she had that proposal. That's, I think, a big mistake. So could anyone do it better? Tony Blair comes to mind, but no one is going to let him near power again. Uh, and maybe a more moderate cap, uh, character in the Labour camp, Yvette Cooper, Chuck O'Muna. Um, but, but really, um, I think Brexit could make a fool of anyone. Okay, thank you, Jacob, for another brilliant piece of analysis. I would give you a pay rise if I was paying you, but fortunately, I don't. I'll accept a pay rise on nothing. Now it's time to talk about the Lib Dems. The Lib Dems have been more like the Lib Who Dems, as they've been avoiding the spotlight as much as Jeremy Corbyn avoids questions on nuclear warfare. <laughs> the Lib Dems have had a dramatic decline since 2010, when they formed a coalition government with the Conservative Party after the Conservatives failed to win a majority of seats in the 2010 election. An example of this decline is the fact that they won 62 seats in the 2010 election and only won 8 seats in the 2015 election. Who do you believe is to blame for this decline? Is it Nick Clegg and David Cameron's coalition of chaos? Or the fact that they don't appear as attractive to the electorate as they used to? Jacob, what are your opinions on the Lib Dems' downfall from political heavyweights to mere lightweights who are just there to make up the numbers? Oh, I'll admit, Thomas, you know, something inside of me broke when you said uh, about how many seats they used to have. Because in the run-up to the 2010 election, let's not forget, the Lib Dems weren't only a player who then became the kingmaker in regards to the coalition government. They were ahead in the polls after the first televised debate. Nick Clegg gave such a persuasive performance that the Lib Dems rocketed, Clegg mania begun, and the Lib Dems were beating both the Conservatives and and Labour in the polls. Of course, now we've had three years where, where, frankly, they're not even the third biggest party in the House of Commons. So, so why has that happened? I think it's because they received a lot of the blame of negative things from the coalition without receiving a lot of the credit for the positive things from the coalition as the smaller party. The thing is, that coalition government, it was stable, it was perfectly stable, and it showed how political parties can put their differences aside and work together. So I think they're being punished really, really unfairly. And now we need them, we need them, Thomas, because you have a Labour Party that is so far to the left, a Conservative Party with members like Jacob Rees-Mogg who are so far to the right and I think everyone's calling out for, for a kind of a Macron moment as we saw in France for some centre party you've got murmurings of it in Westminster of Chukamuna, Nick Clegg and uh, everyone of course before he went to work for Facebook and the centrist party already exists it is the Lib Dem but oh, we need them back and I just I, I think they would have come back if they were if they were going to make and come back anytime soon. I think they need younger blood, and I think we might be waiting a while longer, Thomas. Yes, as, as you say about the macro moment, uh, just for any of our listeners here, there's a brilliant article by BBC News, which is, is about, basically, the Conservatives looking for their macro moment, which is an absolutely fantastic read. I advise you to read it by any means. OK. Um, how do you feel about Vince Cable, who's the current Lib Dem leader, 
And do you feel like you would be able to lead the Lib Dems into a general election? Or do you just feel like he's passed his best before date? (laughs) Well, I mean, Sir Vince, he he has a very, very solid reputation. Particularly as an economist, he was in the coalition government. Um... But frankly, he's so old, and I mean that in the most respectful way possible. He could, uh, he, he could be able to run upstairs, he, he could be doing the London Marathon. But the truth of the matter is that going into the next election, if it is in five years, it's impossible to see how he would take the Lib Dems into government, how he would even lead the Lib Dems beyond that election. And so perhaps because of that, he said that he will stay around as long as Brexit will around. He's positioning himself as the Lib Dem Brexit leader. So, but although I do rate him, the Lib Dems are nowhere. This is their moment. The two political parties are in disarray, and yet they're still polling at about 40% each, and the Lib Dems are nowhere. Now, I still rate Vince Cable, but Thomas, I just don't see the results. Yeah, there's some things about Vince Cable which obviously you just think, like, he's so adamant on a second Brexit referendum, but there's no way that that's really going to happen. I don't feel like, obviously you said, Theresa May's already triggered Article 50, which makes it very, merely, like, most mainly impossible to have a second Brexit referendum. So, obviously, uh, I think it'd be right if Theresa May sent... Um, the checkers plan down to the public, down to the people who decided on Brexit in the first place. So, as well, uh, sorry about that. Thank you very much, Jacob. Uh, <laughs> okay, now, I've come up with a fascinating analogy of all the main party leaders. I just feel like, I just think that in the current state of the UK, we need leaders who are actually going to see the positives of Brexit's in 20 years' time, and leaders who have bright ideas about the future. For me, it's like you've got some grapes that have passed their sell-by date, all mouldy and saggy, but most importantly, there'll be a yellow reduced sticker on them. We need some fresh grapes, all vibrant and new, as well as being well-rounded, like not too far to the left or not too far to the right. Well-rounded, which you can see every single aspect of, like, from the whether it's from Conservative point of view or the Labour point of view, the Lib Dems, or as we'll come on to the UKIP point of view. Yeah. I, I, I just feel like it's going to... I just feel like we need fresh blood. If I can uh, just say, Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn, Vince Cable, if you are listening, thank you for tuning in. Please don't be offended that Thomas has likened you to some reduced saggy grapes. You know, we all love a good bargain. Oh, yes, especially the ones from Home Bargains, that my favourite shop, you know. Brilliant. No, but, um, yes, as I go on to, as I mentioned, you keep it now it's time to talk UKIP. To be honest with you, I believe that UKIP shouldn't be in existence anymore as their main policy that the party was set up around was leaving the European Union. And now that's happened, they basically should be renamed the Pointless Party. Also, UKIP have been the flag bearers for political instability over the past few years after they've changed leader more times than I've had hot dinners. And trust me, that's a lot. (laughs) The leaders over the past few years goes Nigel Farage, Diane James, Nigel Farage again, yawn, Paul Nuttall, Henry Bolton and Gerard Batten. 
The other name for that list is the worst game of Snog, Marry, Avoid ever. In October 2016, two UKIP MEPs, Stephen Wolfe and Mike Hukum, had a fight in the European Parliament. Jacob, why do you feel like that type of thing happens in UKIP? And why do you think that UKIP have been so unstable over the past few years after their 2015 general election success, where they won just around 4 million votes? Well, I mean, if if Thomas, I was uh, I was being extreme, I would say that UKIP uh, is made up of a bunch of absolute nutters, and that's why they start <laughs> punching each other. And I I don't think that's true. But it's important to note that UKIP, it's in the name. You know, their one big clear policy is to leave the European Union, and we are leaving the European Union. So that. Uh, as happy as they were when that happened, is an existential crisis. And they kind of, in the 2016-17 election under Paul Nuttall, they tried to move themselves as the proposers of a hard Brexit. But really, the public, when they, when they weren't sure what Theresa May was, a pro, uh, was proposing or Jeremy Corbyn, that didn't mean much. And the question remains unanswered. In a Brexit world, what is the purpose of UKIP apart from the new BNP? Of course, the BNP, Thomas, are nowhere to be seen. Yes, as I say, the BNP, where have they gone? Where have they been all my life? I, I need the BNP! No, we don't now, actually, to be honest, but thank you very much, Jacob, again. Uh, I have some stats about UKIP's instability. They went from 3.9 million votes in 2015 to, which is, this is quite rather laughable, to 594,000 votes in 2017. A drop of over 3 million votes, that is. And they also lost their only seat in Parliament. Now, that's what I call... A disaster. I mean, if I can just say, if you look at the votes, yes, in 2015 they got 4 million votes, but that only translated to one seat. And the reason for this is first past the post. You need to have a concentration of support. And UKIP, whether you like it or not, it is an extreme party. It is on the far right of politics. And even in that surge of support, 4 million votes, they were unable to prove that they could become a mainstream party. So they did lose their one MP they've got, but as well, he was a Tory. He swapped to UKIP, but they got that seat more because he was the incumbent and the constituents liked him than for being a UKIP MP. So yes, UKIP did have formal votes in 2015. They did get Brexit in 2016, but it's a very interesting question about how successful they have been. Yeah, I've also got to mention their European election success in 2014, where they they were the highest party over both Labour and the Tories. Why do you think they were so successful in the European elections when they haven't been in uh, the general elections? Yeah, and I think, um, I, I mean, I think that would be a trend you would continue to see if we were staying in the European Union. And I think the reason for that, Thomas, is that when you see such low turnouts for the European elections, you either get the, the, the people who vote are the people who really, really care Generally speaking, they're the people who really, really, really dislike the European Union, who really, really, really want Brexit, and therefore who are likely to vote UKIP. So if voting for EU elections was compulsory, I don't think you would see that. I mean, you would see a lot of votes for UKIP. I don't think you would see the victories like you've seen at the minute.
Yes, uh, thank you very much, Jacob. And um, now on to what I've described as my favourite part of the show. It's time to talk Labour. Jeremy Corbyn, who's the leader of the Labour Party, or, as I know him, the world's worst climber, because as soon as he gets to the top, he always falls down again. Where to start? Most pensioners' lives aren't very exciting, but most pensioners aren't Jeremy Corbyn. Most pensioners watch daytime TV, go to the allotment, or have a ride on the bus with their free bus pass. Not get involved in scandals after scandals. Jeremy Corbyn's previous big scandal was being found guilty by the fashion police for wearing socks and sandals before getting involved in an anti-Semitism row. Let's not take away how well laboured in the 2017 election as they made significant gains on the Tories, which resulted in no party gaining a majority. As a result of that, the Tories formed a minority government with a confidence and supply arrangement with the DUP of Northern Ireland. Jacob, what do you f- why do you think that Labour had the renaissance that it had in the 2017 election? Well, I mean, absolutely. When Theresa May called that election, because an election was not due for three years, and she had a majority, a small one, but she had one. She called it because she was in double digits ahead of the polls. People were saying this is going to be a a Blair landslide, a Thatcher landslide of a majority of 100, 150. And so from that perspective, for the Conservatives to actually lose seats is remarkable. And certainly to gain 30 seats over 2015. But I think it's actually worth noting, Thomas, that Labour lost the election. Labour got fewer seats than the Conservatives and they are not in government. Yes, they got more than expected, they got more than in 2015, but for a lot of the Labour professionals working at Labour HQ, they were bitterly disappointed. This was a loss on the scale that Gordon Brown lost in 2010. So it just goes to show the unpredictability um, of our politics, that it was seen as such a strong performance. As for why it happened... Goodness, goodness me, I, I'm not sure anyone can really say, but I, I, I would say that, first of all, the Labour manifesto was very popular. I think it was able to hit a nerve with people fed up of austerity. And quite frankly, I think Theresa May made every single mistake in the book. I, I, I think she really did. Um, you know, from repeating strong and stable to having to backtrack on, on, on the... Um, care, the care um, proposed thing, um, but yeah, uh, so I think yeah, a huge range of factors that contributed to Labour's surprise results, shall we say, neither a success nor a failure. Yeah, as, as it says, people see it as a success, like the general public said, wow, Labour did really well, uh, yeah, let's go, like, we, the week after we had, oh, Jeremy Corbyn being chanted out of Glastonbury. He made an appearance at Glastonbury. But the thing is, he didn't win. He's like one of the only uh, leaders who, of, the, of the main party who's lost to have kept his job. And I don't, I don't know how, because recently, obviously, he got, once he got elected first time, he went for a second leadership election after Brexit. And then uh, I've, um, I would, wouldn't be surprised at all if there was a, another leadership election after the anti-Semitism row. Do you, Jacob, do you think that there could be another Labour leadership election on the horizon? I mean, 
I think it's possible. I think it is. Um, the the interesting thing I, I think you'll observe since uh, since Jeremy Corbyn became elected is that he is beginning to cement the position of the left within Labour as an organisation. You know, he there was a fresh intake of MPs, he's got the shadow cabinet, he's got the members of the Labour executive who are loyal to him. So I think that... Um, to be honest, in a, in a new leadership election, if Jeremy Corbyn wasn't to stand, the left candidate to succeed him would have a good choice because the Labour voters, and now under Miliband's rules, there's the ones who are voting, the Labour voters absolutely love Jeremy Corbyn and perhaps it's because they absolutely love the left. But I think two things would need to happen. One of two things for our leadership election in Labour. The first of which, Jeremy Corbyn would have to resign. Maybe he thinks he's getting old, maybe he thinks he's stopping the party. Um, who knows? The other one is that the Labour moderates, Yvette Cooper, Chukaramuna, etc, etc, they would need to come out of hiding. They've been in self-imposed exile since his, uh, since his election. And they would be the ones to push for a leadership election, I think, to trigger another vote of no confidence. As, as you said about Yvette Cooper, Chucker and Moon, would they be your uh, ideal candidates? And also there's one big main question that I've been wanting to ask anyone who has an interest in politics. Do you think that David Miliband would come back and lead Labour? As he seems like one of the most like ideal uh, candidates who, for the role of Prime Minister, to be honest, his, his speech-making is good, he's very good, he's very, quite relatable, I believe, from my point of view. So, Jacob, do you think, answer those two questions, who are the ideal candidates, and do you think David Miliband would come back? Uh, well, I think uh, I think a lot would be different, first of all, if David Miliband had won in 2010, because... Uh, whilst I don't think Labour would have been able to win in 2015, they have a problem at the minute of electability in Scotland where they always had so many seats. I think um, he would not have made the changes that Ed made in regards to how leaders are voted and that perhaps would have led to a more moderate cabinet. I think he would be willing to come back if there is a position for him in the Labour Party, which quite simply there is not at the minute. He is the Blairite candidate. He served with, with Blair. He was the Blair candidate in the 2010 election and these current generation of Labour people cannot stand Blair. They think he is a war criminal. They think he, he, he should be in prison. So yes, I think he could come back and I think he would come back but it would have to be in a different party within the Labour uh, within, within the Labour Party but Thomas imagine this a Labour government and you've got Chukka Ramuna you've got Yvette Cooper and you have David Miliband one of them's Prime Minister one of them's Chancellor one of them's Foreign Secretary chucking a good be Brexit Secretary and how much better would that be? I don't want to make it seem like we're being biased towards the Labour Party at the moment, but I feel like they'll do a better job than, obviously, well, the previous big four, as we say, May, Hammond, Johnson and Rudd, who, obviously, two of them have now uh, resigned and uh, been replaced by Sajid Javid, as the home, who's the Home Secretary, who replaced Amber Rudd, and now Jeremy Hunt, who um, is not, let's just say, not the most popular people, especially among the NHS staff, uh, who's re he's replaced Boris Johnson as Foreign Secretary. So what I've got to say about that is just I believe that, obviously, I feel like if you're looking, if, in my opinion, if the country needs those visionaries, 
I don't think... I think they're less likely to come from the Tory party because the Tories that that obviously generally appeal to more of the older generations. I feel like if you're looking for the young, budding, vibrant, visionary politicians, they're going to come from the Labour Party. And yeah, that, that is my opinion on where the future of the country will go post-Brexit. I mean, if, if I could say as well, I think, um, I mean, it's inevitable if you look at uh, how, how elections work, how politics work, sooner or later the Conservatives are going to be out of government. Now, I wouldn't want to sit here and say uh, whether it's a week or whether it's 10 years, um, but then they will go into a period of unelectability, quite frankly, when the incumbent government is so successful that they cannot be got rid of. And I think then... Only then will you see the future, the true future of the Conservatives Party. And the big name that's in my mind, Thomas, is Ruth Davidson, the Scottish leader of the Conservatives, who led them to 12 seats in 2017. That's the sort of landslide. Of course, it, it wasn't a majority. The SNP still had a majority of MPs in Scotland. But that's the sort of huge gains that the Conservatives were expecting to make all over the country. And that's what Ruth Davidson made. Yes, she's a Conservative, but she's brilliantly clever, charismatic, a forward thinker, a moderate. And as well, I mean, you know, she's a lesbian and she's having a baby with her partner she is not the head of the nasty party so i think i think there is a search for who is going to be kind of the, the, the new ideas people the next generation but i think immediately that will be in the labor party yes well in, it's 2018 now and i wouldn't i wouldn't have anything against ruth davidson becoming the leader of the tory party she, she's very good you, you see her like she's on the one show the other week she comes across very well in that obviously she'll be a brilliant role model for all them people who are in the lgbt communities and i feel like we we live in 2018 we have a female doctor who at the first one in 55 years and that is just Obviously, if you went back to 1963, when it all started, female Doctor Who being touted, no way. But we live in a world where we have a female Prime Minister. There's more equality for women, especially with uh, International Women's Day every year, that being a staple of the calendar. I believe that Ruth Davidson would be a, gr- a great choice to be to lead the Tory party into the future. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think as well, sorry Thomas, we're, we're just interrupting each other. Um, but yeah, I mean, you said about seeing Ruth Davidson on The One Show, and I, I think most people would agree, whether you agree with what she's saying or not, she is most definitely charismatic. And when you look at Theresa May, she isn't. Um, I, I read a book over the summer, and it revealed really two interesting things. And the first of which was Theresa May wanted to film a two-minute message during the election to put on social media or whatever. Clearly, it wasn't her idea, because I imagine she doesn't while away the hours on social media. Um, but she, they, they took a two-hour train journey to where they were going to film it. They got there. And they'd forgotten the teleprompter, a teleprompter for a two-minute speech. And she refused to give that speech without the teleprompter. Now, speaking for two minutes, 90% of politicians would do that, no bother. Theresa May isn't a natural. And similarly, just after she'd been elected, um, there was a sit-down interview at the Conservative conference while she was still on top. And her age, they said, they're going to want to know about your family life. Because, of course, her, her two parents died when she was in her 20s. That's a very big thing, a personal thing. Yes. And she said, why? 
She did not understand why. So then one of, one of her aides said, well, my parents died and this is how it made me feel. May went out into the interview and said the exact same thing. So whatever you think of her, I don't think she's remedia, kind of uh, media ready, uh, share it all um, um, sort, of, sort of person we're looking for and that you see in Ruth Davidson. Okay, thank you, Jacob, for staking that claim for to be the head of the Ruth Davidson fan club. Uh, now let's get back onto Labour uh, yes, and Labour. what we were meant to be talking about. Uh, last year's campaign saw Labour aiming to get the vote of the youth as they were backed by musical stars such as Stormzy, who is um, I I don't like his music to be honest, but he's very. Down with the kids, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Clean Bandit, uh, they're both a hit with younger music fans and regularly hit the top of the charts, but only 57% of 18 to 19-year-olds voted, which that means around 43% didn't. So, Jacob, what do you feel can be done to encourage more young people to vote? I mean, absolutely. When you look at the older people voting, I think it's more around 90%. And that starts a vicious cycle, which we're in. We're in a vicious cycle. The older people vote, so the political parties tailor policies for the older people. So the older people vote, so the political party tailor policies for them. And so somehow we need to break out of that. And I think that's what Jeremy Corbyn was trying, for example, with free tuition fees. And that's a really interesting point. Because Jeremy Corbyn is all for redistributing the wealth. You know, tax the rich, tax them like mad and give that to those who aren't as rich. But he didn't say if, you, if your parents earn under 80 grand a year, then you will have uh, no tuition fees. He said no tuition fees for anyone. Of course, that includes those with parents who have, uh, who, who have millions and millions. And I think the reason that there's that seeming contradiction is because he just wanted a policy to appeal to young people. Whether it worked or not, young people certainly seem to be energised about Labour and they certainly seem, you know, massively to vote for Labour compared to young people voting for the Conservatives. Um, but uh, uh, more needs to be done. I think one final point, uh, better political education in schools. If young people know what they're voting for, know why voting is important, then I think you would see an increase in turnout. Yes, yeah, like, I recall some people going about, like, oh, politics is boring politics and i don't understand it but if we did get better political in education to school it would be it would encourage more people to vote i think turning out in the election would go off the richter scale and i just i just believe that um it's it's needed to happen it needs to happen uh politics should be a gcse option not as a it's an A-level option currently, but it should be a GCSE option as well. So that can bring in more. And then especially it could be developed more into uh, citizenship lessons. Like, that's focused a lot more on, like, safe, e- e-safety now and things like that. But politics is less now. Yeah, well, I think, I think the interesting thing about it um, is that you've had, with these new exams, 9 to 1, you've had so much of a focus on the exams, bigger courses, harder exams, but time for citizenship has been squeezed squeezed out and that's when the political education would be so somehow i think that needs to be repressed yeah so yeah if if jeremy Corbyn's listening to me or any other potential labor leader go and stick politics into the uh curriculum at lower school because it lower secondary even primary even getting like a year five day based around politics year six day to get to 
affect them people. And as we're going to touch on this more in the next episode when we're talking about should the voting age be lowered, to just get to... We need... Because there's a lot of young people who want to have the vote. A lot of, like, especially 16-year-olds, 15-year-olds who understand this. We really want... We, it's just... I feel like a time is now that the voting age should be lowered. So, and folks, come back next week. Yeah, 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 as I say, we're promoting next week's show. Casual bit of promoting there. Uh, yeah. So, self-promotion. <laughs> okay, uh, so, yeah, so the country is now in the most uncertain position. It has been in for years, but what, what do you think would happen if a general election was caused right now? Caused, sorry, called right now, Jacob. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I would get the popcorn ready, Thomas. I really would. I would put my feet up and watch uh, things go. Because if there was a general election held tomorrow, according to the polls, the Conservatives would win. They wouldn't win a majority. The Labour would win more seats, but they would still win. Now, I think compared to the last election, Jeremy Corbyn would keep many of the same policies. I think the Conservatives would not. I think they would realise the mistakes they made last time. But equally, could the Lib Dems come from nowhere and become the uh, the kingmakers? Who knows, Thomas? I really have no idea. Yeah, so, so Jacob, obviously you, you're going to say the Conservatives would win, but you saw what happened in the polls last time round. There were just... There's, there was, like, predictions for a Thatcher-esque, a Blair-esque landslide victory for the Tories. They didn't get it, so I just feel like... Um, I, I don't know if the polls speak that much truth nowadays. So, yeah, so, okay, so. And uh, th- finally, today, uh, well, not finally, <laughs> on, we're on to the next one. Now it's time to talk the SNP. The SNP are like a dog with a bone as they won't give in over a second independence referendum for Scotland. There are currently more pressing issues that the Tories have to deal with, such as Brexit. Theresa May has enough on her plate without Nicola Sturgeon pressing it, pressing it pressuring her to give Scotland a second independence referendum. Jacob, what do you think it would take for Theresa May to give Scotland a second independence referendum? Thomas, I think it would take a miracle. I think Theresa May has been unequivocal. It, it's not going to happen. The entire Conservative Party are for uh, the, this United Kingdom. Uh, they, they gave the SNP their first referendum. It was made very clear to them that was a once-in-a-lifetime referendum. You see how staunchly uh, uh, Theresa May is against having a second Brexit referendum. I think the same applies to a a Scottish independence referendum. In fact, the only way I think we would see a second Scottish independence referendum is if we have a general election and a Labour government comes in without enough seats to form a majority, is backed up in a coalition by the SNP, and then in the negotiations, I think Jeremy Corbyn or whichever leader it would be would have to concede a referendum. But apart from that, no, I cannot see it anyway for May granting that referendum. So there's a lot of... Thank you, Jacob. There's a lot of things about the West Lothian question. You know, the, it's the idea that, just for our listeners here, it's the idea that uh, Scottish MPs are allowed to vote on things that concern England, but English MPs aren't allowed to vote on things concerned with Scotland. So, so why does that happen, Jacob? Why do you believe? Do you believe that should be changed? I mean... 
it seems illogical. It's happened, if you look at it, it's happened because of this kind of uneven uh, devolution we've got. Go, going back to, to Thatcher, for example, this wasn't a question. When you started giving, giving power to these devolved assemblies, and all of a sudden um, they have rights to make decisions, as you say, over, for example, the shopping hours in England... But English MPs can't make equivalent decisions in Scotland. So I, I think, I mean, frankly, I think it's not the biggest issue in politics. I think you can understand why it's been pushed to the background. But it does seem like a contradiction. And I think it, it does need um, sorted out. Of course, there was the whole idea of English votes for English laws, um, which had some sort of a veto power, which seems like a sticky plaster. Seems like a sticky plaster for the issue um, until maybe this whole Brexit malarkey is done with, can look at constitutional reform again, and maybe that's when we were, uh, they, they would change it properly. Yes, I, I, I see where you're coming from with that, Jacob. Obviously, it's been pushed to the background, but you think back to a few years ago when tuition fees were introduced in um, England, and it was a Scottish MP who had the deciding vote in that. So... Um, I just, I just believe that maybe we should be, the rest of the United Kingdom should be given a vote on a second Scottish independence referendum because of the West Lothian question. This is an interesting question because, of course, in the Scottish independence referendum in 2014, it was only Scots living in Scotland. If you're a Scot living in London, no, you couldn't vote. If you're an Englishman living in Scotland, no, you couldn't vote. And really, it would be the breakup of the entire uh, kingdom, the entire United Kingdom. Clearly, it would affect the whole United Kingdom. So I think there is, Thomas, a very strong case <laughs> Um, for for a Scottish independence referendum to be to be given to the whole country, but then would the SNP accept that? Would they accept the results? You know, if a majority of Scots voted to leave the UK, but then because of the votes of England, Wales, and Northern Ireland, they stayed. What would happen then? Uh, it's hard to see. It's a it's a very interesting question, Thomas. Like it would seem to be, it might be on par of like you know how the Brexit referendum was divided into England and Wales wanted to leave, and then Scotland and Northern Ireland want to stay. So it could be on par with something like that, with the fact that obviously Scotland would want to leave, but the rest of them would, rest of the countries in the UK will want Scotland to stay. I mean, a very interesting thing, and I'm not, I'm not going to give an opinion on it, but. The way the Brexit referendum was done, it was counted in constituencies. So you can look on a map and you can see this constituency voted to remain, this constituency voted to leave. And as a result of that, you can say uh, England voted to leave, Scotland voted to remain. It is possible, it would take longer, but it's certainly not out of the question for a referendum to be called and then for all the votes to be brought to one central place to counting. It would take longer, but then, for example, if there was a UK-wide referendum on Scottish independence, there was a worry that Scots themselves would vote to leave but, uh, and they would be discontent if they were kept in because of the vote of the rest of the UK. It is possible, but we would never know how Scotland voted if you had the votes counted at a central place. Would the SNP again, would they agree to it? I'm not sure. I, I think it's very hypothetical at this stage. Okay. Thank you very much, Jacob. And now it's time to talk about the Green Party with our special guest, Mrs Lawson. Please welcome our special guest, who was once a candidate for Parliament against the bane of all teachers' lives, Michael Gove. It's Mrs Lawson. <laughs> How does it feel to be the first ever special guest on Keeping It Current? Well, uh, there really aren't words to uh, to express my excitement and, and my gratitude at being invited. It's 
Okay, you stood for the Green Party in 2015. Could you give a basic summary on the Green Party for the listeners? Uh, well, the Green Party is very different from uh, what you might call the traditional parties, the Conservatives, um, Labour and even the Lib Dems. Um, they all kind of tweak the status quo, I suppose, and when, um, when their manifestos come out, they all look kind of the same with slight differences about who's going to raise tax and who's going to lower tax. The Green Party um, has a completely different way of looking at things, recognising that we live on a planet of finite resources and that we can't continue with a system of capitalism which um, is really based around everybody buying more stuff. We can't keep on making and buying more stuff because we're going to run out of of resources Um, and so the Green Party has a radically different way um, of looking at how we can all continue to live good and fulfilling lives it's not about some kind of environmental austerity we can all live really good lives without um, wrecking our environment in the process yes sir. how did you get involved with the green party um gosh environmental um matters is something it's something that's been of interest and concern to me my whole life really as as, as far back as i can remember i went on my first CND or Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament Mm. demonstration with my mum I was maybe nine or ten and it's just always something that's that's concerned me Um, I wasn't really aware that there was a Green Party um, but I suppose I was always politically active because my parents are are Lib Dems and I can Mm -hmm. remember going delivering leaflets around about election time with my mum just shoving them through all the doors um, down our road Um, so I suppose that's something that I've always been aware of politics in its broadest sense um i think when i first became aware of the green party was round about the um the second general election for new labor so whatever i can't remember the years now but 2001 it was 2001 when they came in so it would have been 2006 i guess when Mm -hmm. they all stood for re-election and uh, my husband and i went along to uh, a candidates debate um and the Green Party candidate that was there was really very, very impressive. And I suppose that's when I really started to become aware that there was a Green Party and actually they were, you know, they were worth thinking about, that they were a viable um, political party. Um, And they had a candidate in my constituency that I could actually vote for, Mm -hmm. and that was a first. Um, I don't think we'd had... I don't think I'd ever seen a ballot paper with a Green Party candidate on prior yeah. to that election. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was when I first sort of became aware. And then actually, yeah. it must have been two years after that, there were district council elections and my husband stood for our ward in the district council um, just as a paper candidate. Um, and then we moved to Surrey um, for work reasons. And um, we... Um, started to think about becoming involved with our parish council and my husband was all ready to put his name forward for the parish council elections and because we had a young family we hadn't actually made it although we were members of the green party we hadn't gone along to any of the um meetings or anything because it was they were all evenings and it was just a bit of a nightmare but they had a christmas drinks thing and we said we really are going to have to show up to something otherwise they're going to just think we're a complete waste of time and they're never going to support Uh, Doug, my husband, um, standing for the parish council because Mm -hmm. they're going to think, well, you never turn up to anything, so why why would we? 
So we went along to the Christmas drinks and had a chat um, with the guy there and he was really happy about that. Um, and at that time, the general election had been called for uh, 2015 and um, Doug was happy to put his name forward. And I took our daughter to the loo and when I came back, I discovered that in fact, I was going to be the candidate um, <laughs> instead because they were trying to encourage more women to stand, which I think is, is excellent. Um, women and uh, are very underrepresented um, in Parliament, and um, so as you know, essentially I was a paper candidate. So, um, so I said yes, I would put my, my name forward. Yeah, I, I just go on the women about underrepresentation in Parliament. I think um, J- Jacob told me something about um, women, saying that the amount of women par- in Parliament ever, 2015, mm. from 2015, mm. back forever. What, it was the first time the amount of women MPs all time was more than the amount of male MPs sitting in that current Parliament. So that is... Is that true? Yeah, it was oh, a very big shock. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you kind of answered answer my next question. Oh, how, sorry. But, well, how did you get involved with the Green Party? Yeah, so, well, yes, that's... that's uh, that's how it, it happened. We just kind of we joined and um, and the local party in um, Surrey Heath, which is the constituency where the the Gove operates <laughs> out of his lair. Um, uh, that was a constituency where we were living, so we we just wanted to get involved. Really, initially, our our, our thought was, as I said, for my husband to to stand for the parish council, which just covered the village where we lived, um, and. Um, Yes, we didn't necessarily have any bigger ambitions than that at the time, yeah. but we kind of got swept along in the green surge. Yeah. So why did you decide to be a candidate in 2015? I think, well, partly because I kind of got told when I came back from the loo that it was <laughs> happening. Um, to be fair, I mean, of course they asked, they didn't just tell me. Um, but I thought, well, um, I thought it was really important People talk about a paper candidate, and actually that in itself is, is a ridiculous concept. The idea that our political system is based on this first-past-the-post, which means that unless you live in a swing constituency, really, your vote is wasted. So, um, you know, we have, Surrey Heath is a Tory safe seat. Michael Gove has a huge majority. He increased his majority in 2015. Um, I imagine I didn't check, but I imagine he probably increased it again last time. Yeah, I think. Um, we were living up here by then, so I cared less. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's a ludicrous system, and I thought it's. I, I really thought it was important that there was a green candidate, so at least people who wanted to vote green and yeah. who wanted to, you know, have their voices heard, at least they could not have to abstain. They could actually tick a box or cross in a box um, to say no, I, I'm not voting for the status quo, I'm not putting my name to Tory austerity, to Gove and his disastrous policies, um, I'm, I'm not having any of that. Um, and, and I think that is really, really important, even though, you know, there is this concept and, and parties use it, political parties use it, they say, oh, you don't want your vote to be wasted, if you vote for X party, your vote will be wasted. Um, and I think, I, I hate that concept, your vote is, is a personal thing, and you shouldn't be coerced by this threat that your vote's going to be wasted into um, voting for something that actually you don't believe in. Yeah. So what was the media presence like during the campaign? 
Not as much as you might think. Um, the local press covered the debates and things like that, um, and we were all invited, all the candidates were invited to um, answer certain things as far as I can remember. I think some of the local papers got in touch and said, you know, what do you think about X, Y and Z? Um, but it was all just very much local because of course Michael Gove was still a minister I think was he chief whip at the time um, yeah. and so all of his sort of ministerial stuff it was all happening in Westminster all of the national coverage of what he was up to and, and, and sort of a national scale we didn't see any of that um, at all in, uh, in Surrey Heath mm-hmm. which is kind of a relief <laughs> <laughs> so uh, do you feel that your campaign was successful? Yes, I do. Um, although I lost, uh, obviously, um, I, I was expecting uh, to lose. I wouldn't have stood if I'd actually thought I would be elected because I wasn't at all ready or prepared um, at that time to become a Member of Parliament. Um, and there would be much better people to do that job uh, than me. Um, but 3,200, I think, off the top of my head, people voted for me. Um, and I think, well, that's a vote mm-hmm. you know those 3,200 people would not have had that opportunity to vote green mm-hmm. if I hadn't stood yeah. um, so in that point of view I think that's really important and I think it's an important message for the other parties to see that actually the Green Party mm-hmm. it's not a bunch of crackpots we're a viable party with um, you know with something to say that actually has an awful lot of support an increasing amount of support from the electorate um, and and they need to take notice of what we have to say. Mm-hmm. So what do you think the Green Party can do to become a, a bigger hitter seats-wise when it comes to elections? We've actually got, I looked it up this morning, because I, I, I know you sent me that question, I thought, I don't think people realise actually how many elected representatives we have. People tend to know about Caroline Lucas, who is mm-hmm. our wonderful uh, Member of Parliament for Brighton Pavilion. We also have... Uh, one member in the House of Lords, Baroness Jenny Jones. We have three MEPs, members of the European Parliament. Uh, We have two London Assembly members, and we have, getting on for 200 elected councillors in principal authorities. Um, We got our first one in Cumbria last year, down in Kendal, can't think of the name of the ward, but somewhere in Kendal. Um, And um, Councillor Lawson, uh, my husband is on Penrith Town Council, which is apolitical. Um, uh, but uh, so actually, um, although because the first past the post system in general elections is kind of rigged against yeah. really everybody um, in a way other than the the two big parties, um, we are we're standing candidates in almost every constituency. So we are providing an opportunity for people to vote green and the more we can do that, the more inroads we make and the more, um, you know, it promotes the green agenda, it gets people, um, you know, it gets the electorate thinking about and noticing the Green Party and and gradually it's a sort of um, a creeping consciousness, I suppose, a creeping (laughs) awareness that that we're there and that we've got something to say. It's not like when sometimes on the ballot... You, I don't know if they still exist, but in the 80s there was um, the Monster Raving Looney Party. Mm-hmm. And um, and every so often you'd have a Monster Raving Looney Party 
uh, representative pop up on your ballot and it was kind of a protest <laughs> vote and all a bit of a laugh and we all had a jolly good giggle when we saw them on the telly. Um, the Green Party's not like that. We're a serious party, we've got something to say and I think the more that we're on ballot papers around the country and the more people yeah. will start to realise um, and we are getting so many Green councillors um, elected which is fantastic because it means that Green um, policies are being implemented at that local council level which has in many cases a really direct benefit um, to people's lives so in places like Bristol where they've got lots of green councillors and Brighton again where they've got lots of green councillors so there's some really great stuff happening um, and um, I'm sure that Penrith Town Council will benefit greatly from having a green <laughs> a green voice yeah so um, what were the other candidates like in the obviously in the election well, there were quite a few candidates actually I was surprised how many obviously there was Michael Gove um, I didn't spend a lot of time talking to him I'll be honest um, and he was pretty much how he is on the telly um, he made a big deal of nodding and saying mm, yes yes when I spoke to him <laughs> which made me think you are not listening to me at all but he kind of did the positive body language hmm Mm, yes mm. and I thought yeah you don't really give us stuff what I've got to say <laughs> um, uh, then there was a Labour candidate who was very young he was not local at all and I think the Labour Party had put him in to kind of earn his stripes because obviously he was never going to be elected in Surrey Heath um, and he yeah he was very young and he had a lot of learning to do um, I didn't think he came across very well and at the first hustings, um, there was a question about the NHS and he criticised the local hospital, which was a major, major faux pas. And everybody kind of went and hissed and oh, there was a lot of rumbling um, because how dare you diss our hospital and our doctors and our nurses, you outsider from Harrow, you. Um, so I, I wasn't impressed with him at all. Um, then the Lib Dem lady was local. She was... I think she'd been a local councillor. I didn't think she came across particularly well either, um, unfortunately, um, which is a real shame because she was the only other female candidate. Um, and uh, prime example, uh, you're aware of Brian May? Yeah. Brian May. Uh, he, ha he lives <laughs> in Surrey Heath um, and has an organisation called Common Decency, um, which is all it shares a lot although it's apolitical it mm -hmm. shares a lot of similar um kind of has a similar ethos i guess to a lot of green party policies and he was endorsing candidates in the general mm -hmm. election in 2015 um, and he endorsed me and i don't think wow. it was because he particularly had gone oh, that kimberly lawson i like the cut of her jib i think it was because <laughs> i was the green party candidate and he was endorsing all green party candidates but you can imagine when I saw that I had been endorsed by Brian May of Queen, um, I was quite excited and I tweeted or something. And the Lib Dem woman came back and tweeted, well, I don't know why, because I voted in favour of this and this. And she just came across as really kind of whiny and, and bitter. Um, and I thought, just let me enjoy my name, please. <laughs> um, so, so that was her. Uh, the UKIP guy was actually really nice. 
unfriendly. And I know, I know, I was really surprised. And he made a point of coming and saying hello when we had a meeting with the returning officer and we had to hand in all our paperwork and agree no fist fights on the floor and that kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, and, and he was very friendly and pleasant and we had several good chats about just stuff. Um, and in fact, I did say to him, you're, you're far too nice to be in UKIP, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> to the, you know, because we just seemed at that time, it was just like every week, some UKIP counsellor was coming out and saying something hideous um, about ethnic minorities or women or, you know, it was just like one after another after another. And, and I said to the other, and Nigel Farage, of course, was coming out with other things. And you're just thinking, oh my word, these people. And I said, do they not just make you want to curl up and die a little bit? The way members of your party carrying on. And he said, yeah, absolutely, yes, they do. <laughs> um, so he was pretty nice. Um, so that's Michael Gove, Labour, Lib Dem, UKIP, me. And then the other guy who was fantastic um, was the candidate for the art party, who's an artist called Rob and, no, Bob and Roberta Smith. And that's his professional name. He's actually called Patrick something i've forgotten um but we all just called him bob and he was the candidate for the art party um and he is a professional artist and was standing against michael gove although michael gove was not the education secretary anymore he'd been sacked from that post um he decided because gove was the architect of Mm -hmm. you know the downfall of of the arts in its broadest sense in schools he would stand against Michael Gove to raise issues about art in schools Um, and he was great he was really nice he had we had some really good chats um, and we hung out quite a lot on election night as well um, and had wine and yeah Uh, he was he was great and he did I think he got fewer votes than me in the end but he was yeah he was really really good and um we actually, he was the one candidate when they re- announced the results and our constituency was one of the last to be announced um, at something hideous like half past seven in the morning. We had been there all night and we were, and I'd been at work all day on the Thursday and then been at the polling station or the, not the, the uh, what do you call it, where they count the votes? Um, I'm not quite sure. Anyway, Camberley Town Hall or Leisure Centre, whatever it was been there all night so we were all absolutely I was shattered Um, and uh, anyway they announced the results and Michael gave his acceptance speech Um, and then we were asked does anybody else want to say anything and Bob did and that was great because he had that opportunity to get up national attention um, and say what he had to say which was which was great and I thought he made some really good points and, and put them across extremely well and I agreed with everything that he said so that saved me <laughs> the uh, embarrassment of having to do that myself yeah. when I was only semi-conscious <laughs> so, so uh, was it an enjoyable experience um yes I mean it wasn't enjoyable in the sense of a laugh a minute it was an awful lot of hard work and I can remember lots of nights sitting up late trying to reply to emails and and tweeting and um, and that was just really tiring and hard work and in some ways it was kind of weird because I was still doing all my normal things getting up and taking the children to school and going to work and going to Sainsbury's and all of these things looking around and thinking oh my word 
these people have all had my leaflet through their door. They're, they're looking at me going, what's she doing buying whatever, you know, chicken. She shouldn't be buying chicken. She's the Green Party. <laughs> whatever, I don't know. So that was just a little bit weird, but I didn't actually get recognised by anybody until after the election. And then I was at the park with my daughter um, and there was another parent there who said, why aren't you the Green Party person? <laughs> but um, it was definitely... Um, I think it was enjoyable. There were some some definite highlights. A, a lot of what I did, um, I did a certain amount in Surrey Heath, but the big priority for the Green Party was to make sure that Caroline Lucas was re-elected. And because we were only in, in Surrey and she's in Brighton, um, it's not that far away. So I went two or three, three times, I think, down to Brighton to campaign for her. Mm -hmm. um, and that was fantastic and I got to meet her which was very exciting and a big privilege um, and I have a photograph of the two of us together um, which I, I mean I said can I can we do this because I am the candidate in Surrey Heath and I'm standing against Michael Gove and I need all the help I can get and she was more than happy so then I had a mm -hmm. photograph of the two of us together to put in some of my campaign literature which was fab um, so that was lovely and it was great there was such a buzz down in Brighton because they've got mm -hmm. such a well-organised, uh, you know, they have an actual office with staff um, or at least volunteers who are there all the time and know what they're doing. And so we went out and people had actually come down from all over the country to help campaign. So there was one guy um, from Manchester and I went yeah. out canvassing with him. Um, I went out canvassing with uh, somebody else who we'd driven down together from Surrey Heath. Um, we had a great time. That was mm -hmm. that was great, and it was so exciting to see, because in Surrey Heath, it was me yeah. and kind of half a dozen other people. <laughs> um, you know, it was very small potatoes. Yeah. Whereas in Brighton, it's huge, and it made you realise, yeah, we are part of something big and vibrant and exciting, mm -hmm. but actually achieving something. Um, yeah. So that was really, it was very encouraging. Mm -hmm. um, parts of it obviously were just horrible. I'm not particularly comfortable getting up in front of crowds of people and speaking yeah. um, and I did several hustings and that was quite frightening um, but you know I met some great people mm -hmm. um, so enjoyable I suppose yes it was a positive experience not all yeah. of it was was exciting and fun but it was um, a big learning experience and um, I don't know that I would do it again mm -hmm. yeah. but um, yeah, it was good. Yeah. So, uh, finally, what are your opinions on the current state of the country? Wow, how long have you got? <laughs> um, I think, you know, I think our country is great and I think it has so much potential and I think, unfortunately, at the moment, it is so divided and I really think um, the way that Brexit has been handled has has just made that worse. I think... I think Brexit highlighted the divisions that were already there and I think it's it's made them worse. I think it's polarised people. Um, you know, everyone's either um, a corrupt, racist, bigoted Brexiteer <laughs> or they're a Ramona. Um, you know, you can't... You're one or the other. It's put everybody into two camps or one of two camps and I, yeah. I think that's that's such a shame because Brexit actually could be a real opportunity for our country. It could be an opportunity yeah. for some real grassroots local democracy um, instead of 
I know this has been a big criticism, you know, so how many of our laws are being made by bureaucrats and lobbyists in Europe? Um, and that is, you know, I think that's a genuine concern mm. that people are right to raise. Um, but unfortunately, the way it's been gone about has been so... Oh, they really couldn't have screwed it up worse if they tried, I don't think. Um, and it's it's given a platform to people like Farage and Aaron Banks to spout these hideous ra racist views, um, you know, and, and all of this very extreme language, swarms of migrants or immigrants and... Um, you know all of this stuff that we've heard about which is just designed to play on people's fears and actually do you know what we're in a rich country we have so much going for us there really is no need for any mm -hmm. of that um and um yeah so i think that's that's bad i think austerity has been appalling i think it has hurt the people who are most in need um yeah, I think the Tories have really made a right mess. And people say, oh, well, you know, back in the 70s, the unions had too much power and we had the three-day week and we had all those power cuts. And I remember that just about. I can remember my parents having uh, a box of candles under the kitchen sink for when there was a power cut. Um, <laughs> but most of what I remember is growing up under Thatcher and it just seemed unremittingly grey somehow. And... Um, you know it, everything just seemed to be bad um, and, and I know we had the Cold War and all of that other stuff going on at the same time um, and we still had you know Reagan at the American air bases and, but it just felt bad and when, um, and when she resigned I was in the upper sixth when she resigned I just felt like cartwheeling I've never cartwheeled in my life but <laughs> if I could I would have done on that day because it just felt fun and then of course we got John Major and yeah um, but then when New Labour came in it felt so exciting and so fantastic and it felt I felt like I was floating two feet off the ground it felt like a new start for the country and unfortunately you know they promised a lot and, and I think um, delivered little other than illegal war in Iraq, so, you know. <laughs> uh, so I think, oh, the state of our country, I think it's in a right old state. I really do. Yeah. Um, and I... Um, some days I just, I look at the news and I, it just yeah. makes me feel so depressed. Um, I just think, ugh. But then I think, actually, there are so many really good people out there um, who are working who are working for good who mm -hmm. are working to end inequality yeah. who are working to end discrimination yeah. um, not just Green Party people, there are other good people in other parties, shockingly yeah. um, or of no party um, but uh, you know, there is hope, while we still want better things for ourselves and for our children then, you know, there's hope So now it's time for a game of political Would You Rather so all you have to do is decide which of the two politicians I name is the better one. So, well, for what? Better at in in uh, just as politicians it, or for uh, you know just in your opinion. Okay. Okay. So are you ready? Okay, let's do it. Margaret Thatcher or Theresa May? <laughs> um, 
Oh my goodness. Well, Margaret Thatcher was the first female Prime Minister, so I suppose in that respect alone, maybe she deserves some kudos, <laughs> if I absolutely have to. Okay. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn or Gordon Brown? Gordon Brown. Ooh. Uh, Boris Johnson or Nigel Farage? <laughs> um, uh, I really would. Well, okay, I've, I've never instigated uh, a petition against Boris Johnson, so I guess I'll have to pick Boris Johnson. <laughs> I have against Farage. Um, Michael Gove or Jacob Rees Mogg? Oh, good grief. <laughs> um, uh, oh, they're both just I don't want to slander but they're really Jacob Rees-Mogg is quite amusing on Have I Got News For You sometimes um, then I've shaken hands with Michael Gove <laughs> Gove Oh. oh, impossible choice. Nick Clegg or Vince Cable? Oh, tricky. Tricky, tricky. Nick, I think. Nick. Um, Ed Miliband or David Miliband? David. Uh, John Major or Tony Blair? Tony Blair. Oh, yeah, Tony Blair. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon or Ruth Davidson? Oh. Nicola. Oh. Ed Balls or George Osborne? <laughs> Ed. Although I'd like to see George on Strictly. <laughs> that would be very amusing. It would be so funny. <laughs> Plus, I've never seen a photograph of Ed Balls with a prostitute on his lap and Coke on the table. <laughs> okay, final one. Caroline Lucas or Natalie Bennett? Caroline. There you go. So that's it. And thank you very much to this week's special guest, Mrs. Lawson. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And now for a summary of this week's episode. What an episode it's been. It's been a blast, hasn't it, Jacob? It has. I've had a brilliant time. Thank you for inviting me, Thomas. Please be sure to join us next week for the next episode, which is about whether the voting age should be lowered. Also, if anyone's got any questions for me or for Jacob to be read out on the show, please email keepingitcurrent at outlook.com. That's all lowercase. And sadly, this is the end of the show. Thank you to Mrs. Lawson. And as always, thank you to Jacob Reed. Thank you, Thomas. Be sure to join us next time, where we won't be keeping it cool, but, but we, we will, will be keeping, keeping it current. current. Goodbye. <laughs>